0: You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Good morning. My name is Madi. Thank you. And today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus chapter 3, verse 1 through 8 from the NIV. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions pleasures we lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared he saved us not because of righteous things we had done but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Maddie. Um, we have been calling our series through the book of Titus a faithful presence, exploring what it means to be a representation of Jesus Christ in different spheres of life, in, in the home and amongst our friends, the most intimate of relationships. Beyond that, our church community, but also within the culture. And we come today to Titus chapter 3, which is very much about Being a faithful presence in the culture. What does that mean? What does it look like? And how it is possible? We're going to take these next eight verses and explore them over the next few weeks this morning, looking specifically at verse one and two, and it is vital that we do. Let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only made a way for us to be in renewed relationship with you through your son, but you've also given us an incredible purpose and mission in this world for such a time as this. And we ask this morning, as we open your word, that you would open our hearts And that you would transform us, that we might be a faithful witness in this cultural moment. Where we need challenge and correction, would you grant us the grace to receive it? Where we need encouragement and strength, would you grant us the grace to receive it? That we would become more like Jesus and if there is anyone here this morning or joining us online who does not know you, we pray this morning that they would hear and understand the good news about your son and that they would believe and be saved. We pray all of these things together in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. As I look across history, I find myself asking, The question, how did Christianity spread from a mere 25,000 followers in the early years to well over 25 million followers in the ancient world within the first few hundred years? Was it because Christians had great political influence and power? Was it because they had remarkably talented and gifted leaders that wooed the culture? Perhaps it was because Christians had effective mass media campaigns or that they had prominent places in society with loads of money. Well, the answer to those questions is, of course, no. Christianity spread Like wildfire, all while being illegal, with congregations filled with people from the margins of society who were often led by many who were untrained and, by culture's standards, unimpressive. So, how did the world turn upside down? And how can the world be turned? upside down even today? Well, to put it simply, it was the power of the message they preached and the way they lived their lives in light of this message that won a hearing amongst all kinds of people throughout the Roman Empire. And friends, this is what the book of Titus is all about. We explored at the end of chapter two the power of this message, the gospel of grace. But now in chapter three, at the beginning, the author, the apostle Paul, in writing his letter to a church leader in the island of Crete called Titus, he's eager that Christians live their lives in such a way that both reflects the Christian message and compels people to listen to this message. In short, the church is to be a counter-cultural presence for Christ. In fact, I'd like to point out and remind us that the New Testament assumes that Christians were in the margins of society, not in the center. Now, this might sound strange to hear if you grew up in a Place that was predominantly shaped by Christianity and Christian culture. You might even feel discouraged at seeing that decline. But for the early Christians, being in the margins was never an obstacle, it was their opportunity. This is the posture that is assumed when Paul is writing to Christians that they don't have the money, the resources, or the political clout or power. And yet, in no way, shape, or form is he discouraged by that. The world can be turned upside down by ordinary men and women who believe in the power of the message and are changed by the power of that message. Leslie Newbegin, who was a Christian leader from Great Britain in the last century. He actually spent over 40 years in India serving for the sake of the gospel in that context. And when he came back, he was surprised that many in the West have forgotten this. And so he says simply this as a reminder, the New Testament assumes a missionary situation in which the church is a small evangelizing movement in a pagan society. This is what Paul is talking about in his letter to Titus. The mission is to share the gospel, but there is a way of living that commends the gospel, that wins a hearing for the gospel, that is beautifully attractive and countercultural. In fact, let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should actually want Christians to move into your neighborhood. <laughs> that is if they follow scripture. That's an important caveat. <laughs> because the scriptures compel the followers of Jesus to live in a sacrificial way. Not to withdraw from the culture, but to live transformed lives within the culture, even as citizens in a pagan society. In fact, let me put it like this. One piece of evidence that you are a true citizen of heaven is that you are the best citizen of your city. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, gives us five Counter-cultural practices. Yes, this is going to be a five-point sermon today. Some of you are like, "Am I even at Reality Ventura?" Is revival happening? Like, I don't know. We'll we'll see. But these are five practices from this text that we must embrace to show that we are being changed by Jesus and becoming a counter-cultural presence for His name. And the first practice is perhaps the most challenging, which is also why this point will. Be the longest, don't be scared. Number one, if you wanna be a countercultural presence for Jesus, we must embrace respect in an anti-authority age. The citizens of ancient Crete in which Titus lived had a rebellious reputation. And so one of the dangers for the early church on that island would be for them to adopt the same attitude toward all authority. In fact, one of Paul's concerns is that many of these early Christians would say, well, not only am I a Cretan, but I am a Christian, and my King, Jesus, he's the true Lord. I don't even have to pay any attention to your laws or your two-bit pagan ruler, Caesar. And Paul's like, settle down, my translation. He says, actually, verse one of chapter three remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Bear in mind, this is the Roman Empire that we are talking about. Paul is not naive. He knows very well that the Roman Empire was not built on biblical truth. Now, let's be clear. In Paul telling the followers of Jesus to be law-abiding citizens, this is not an endorsement on every form of government. It's an endorsement of the concept of government. Like his other teachings in places like Romans chapter 13, in a much lengthier way, begins to talk about this. And in so commending this kind of lifestyle and culture, he's not endorsing any and every form of government, rather the concept of government. That is, it's better to have in this broken and fallen world, run by broken and fallen humans, some form of government rather than anarchy. I'm reminded of Winston Churchill when he said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. He's not endorsing, Paul here is not endorsing every form of government, just the concept of government. And in so much as the government is not asking us to directly disobey God, we are to be law-abiding and respectful. This means when you get pulled over, You don't roll down your window to the officer and say, like, my kingdom is not of this world, and therefore I speed, and I do not use my indicator lights. You don't get to do that. Now, I jest, but let's get a little more serious. The way in which many Christians speak and conduct themselves on matters pertaining to governing authorities needs to be in check according to the scriptures. And I say this because if you go on Facebook for two minutes, chances are you will come across Christians ranting about a political situation or a political figure, often with insulting language. Social media has, of course, become the go-to medium through which we engage with cultural issues, but sadly, In doing so, Christians do not always reflect the truth and love of Jesus Christ. In fact, for some, it's viewed as you being even more righteous if you insult and mock authority figures that you disagree with. But while we can and should feel strongly about issues that matter, the church is called to do so with respect. The scriptures go even farther than that. We're told that in showing this respect, we're actually honoring God. Biblically speaking, followers of Jesus have a responsibility to honor the laws of the land and officials. Paul talks about this elsewhere at length. Now, there are times, this is not a blanket statement that you should always obey, even if it goes against Scripture. Of course not. There are times, there will be times and have been times where you must say, like the Apostle Peter did in the book of Acts, it is better to obey God rather than man. However, as long as the governing authorities are not forcing you to sin, following Jesus means embracing respect in an anti-authority age. A lot of people often use as an excuse, well, this is the way the world talks about it, so therefore I have full license to talk about it in this way. Fight fire with fire. I'm like, no, what does that have to do with the Bible? And why are we using the imagery of fire? That's usually not good in that context. One of the reasons the commentators tell us that Paul is writing in this way and is clear to talk about these instructions is to protect the church from being perceived as merely a political movement. He doesn't want anyone in any time or place to mistake the gospel of Jesus Christ with a particular human political movement because the gospel will never fit in to any one pol- political party or form or government, so we should never talk as though it did. Can I get an amen? Some of you are like, I'll give you a lowercase amen. <laughs> Listen friends, you cannot baptize Jesus into your political ideology or party or particular form. Jesus is perfect. He is righteous. He is just in all of his ways and merciful and loving and kind. We cannot bring him down to a mere human level as if any particular leader or particular government in this broken world could ever be the exact representation of the kingdom of God. Far be it from us to do that. Jesus is as high and exalted, and we should speak of him as he is the matchless name and Savior. Amen? Amen? This is what Christ calls us to. He's not going to be fit into a particular box. Now, there are times because of that that we will and must disagree, but you are to do so with respect, and that means practically that we refuse to slander, to smear, to insult, or mock. But in contrast, being a Christian means that we speak the truth and we pray for our leaders. I mean, friends, let's be honest. If we prayed for our leaders half as much as we often insult them, we might see a revival. (laughs) This week, I. I've generally disengaged from social media for the last few years, although I I dabble. And this week I went on Facebook, as as you do, and it was literally a matter of minutes and there was a particular political situation and there were Christians responding and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I'm above this. In fact, one of the reasons I don't engage as much is because I have trouble guarding what I say. We're gonna get to that in a moment. But having said that, I genuinely was grieved at the way in which Christians were talking about the situation in these leaders, it was like full of insults and mockery and arrogance. And it was like everyone was praising it, like Christians, this should not be so in the church of God. Speak the truth, absolutely with humility and with respect. There are many examples of this all over the Bible. When a man named Joseph was put into prison for crimes he did not commit, he treated the people around him and above him with honor. When the king of Persia was naively giving permission for the Jewish people to be destroyed, Queen Esther courageously challenged him but did so with respect. And when King Saul wrongly sought to kill Israel's future king, David, he refused to treat his persecutor in the same way and instead prayed. I know this can be so difficult in heated times, but friends, this is also our opportunity to stand out as distinct people. I was reminded of John Wesley, who was one of the leaders in England during a period of time known as the First Great Awakening, a time of revival. And when he was asked to speak on a particular political situation in voting season, he said this, and we would do well to take it to heart. He said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, number one, to vote for the person they judged most worthy. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And number three, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Wow. In an age in which it is far too easy and totally socially acceptable to repeat slurs about others, a little John Wesley might be good for us. Amen? This passage is vital. We must embrace respect in an anti-authority age. But this passage is more than just about us being law-abiding citizens. Secondly, if we want to be a counter-cultural presence, we must serve others in a self-serving culture. So we need to embrace respect in an anti-authority age, but we also need to serve in a self-serving culture. So more than just Paying your taxes and making sure you behave yourself online, which you should. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse one, and be ready to do whatever is good. Jesus Christ makes you a good works enthusiast. Some translations say that you should be eager to do what is good, which is particularly important in our North American culture, where we tend to be very individualistic, where for many, the place that you live and maybe the job that you hold is simply a backdrop for the greater story of you. Now, believe me, I heard this when I pastored in LA for 10 years, like everyone moves to LA and it's like their backdrop and this is their moment to shine on the stage. (laughs) And so, the way in which that impacts the way that you you view your community and your job is what can I get out of it? How are these people going to serve me? How can this place and this community be my platform to accomplish my mission? This happens even in the church. Many show up to a church community and they're like, What have you got on offer? Let me see the menu. I'll decide you know, what, what, what I choose. It's very much a consumeristic attitude that can be brought into the church. I was actually I was struck the other week that uh, we've been having a lot of new people moving to Ventura County recently and new people coming to church. And, and this one crew showed up and they're like, hey, we're new here and I just had a question for you. And granted, in my position, I get a lot of questions. You never know what they're gonna be. But I wasn't prepared for this question. You know what it was? Hey, we're here and I just wanna know how we can serve. And I was like, I think I had coffee. I was like, wait, what? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't yeah, we just wanna serve. I'm like, wow, what a countercultural thing to say. Like who shows up in Ventura County like, oh yeah, we, we decided to move here, we just wanna serve. <laughs> Imagine saying that to your neighbor when you move into a new neighborhood. They'll be like, what? It's so distinct. See, kingdom citizens live for a bigger story, the story of God's good news and serving for the good of others. Be ready for every good work. And that begins with our attitudes that we're not only thinking about our time and our talent and our treasure in terms of what we get out of it or individual success, but how we can give, how we can bless other people. It means we arrange our, our jobs and the things that we do and the money that we have under this higher purpose of glorifying God and blessing others. And the word good is important here because it provides clarity and direction. When Paul says good, he says, don't use what you have to promote what is evil or even just what is neutral, but rather what is explicitly good, which at times might run opposite to our instinct for self-preservation. But we would do well to remember the words of Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. We are to show in all kinds of ways genuine good to others and being ready and willing to bless. Think about your neighbors this morning. Think about your coworkers. Think about fellow students or employees or employers. Serve other people. Is this your posture? If we want to be a countercultural presence, we must serve others in a self-serving culture. And this includes... What we do with our mouths. Verse, or number three, we must guard our mouths in a world of gossip. This absolutely includes the way that we speak. Now, I can think of few things that are more countercultural than these words of instruction. He says in verse two, to slander no one. Slander and gossip are closely related. You might call them cousins. And I find it interesting that in our culture, you can actually earn a fantastic salary for being good at gossip. Have you ever thought about that? Like we have an entire literary genre called gossip magazines. It's insane. We're like intrigued by it. It sounds innocent. Oh, what's the goss? But Try a more piercing version of the word. Slander, which literally means speak evil of no one. What Paul is prohibiting here and instructing the church in is we must avoid speaking insulting or abusive language. Malicious thoughts that express themselves verbally. Again, clarification is needed. There may be a time to critique and to challenge and to correct others, but it must be expressed in a manner worthy of God. Or to put it another way, the followers of Jesus should be the most careful speakers in the world because we know our words carry weight. And that's why this prohibition against slander is so key. Slander is essentially misrepresenting a person in order to defame them or damage their reputation. So you take something negative about someone, which might even be true, but then you exaggerate it to the point where you leave everything else out and you misrepresent them in order to make them look worse than they really are. You're like, uh oh, we're all guilty. How often have we we done that? Slander is essentially a failure to tell the whole truth. Now, this can be an area of difficulty for many, and I will put myself squarely at the center of that group because I, if you ask anyone who knows me, I have a very hard time controlling what my mouth says, which is why I need to read the book of James often. If you've never read the book of James, you should. It's like a spiritual slap and a hug at the same time. It's like challenging and encouraging, like, ow, oh yes, I I need that. And oh, his chapter on words, well, just let me, let me just give you a sample. James 3, verse 5 says, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Tell us how you really feel, James. He's like, oh, I just did. See, James paints a picture of how powerfully our words can be used for evil, And he uses the image of fire, which has several important implications. A fire, as we all know in California, has fast and far-reaching implications. Let me just drive this home, if I can say it as boldly as this. Whether you are under the influence of hell or the Holy Spirit will be reflected most keenly in the use of your tongue. And I would also add your keyboard. Okay, so you don't get a free pass if you're like, well, I don't speak much. Oh, we read that all caps email you sent the other week. (laughs) We saw your social media posts. This is everything. This is all communication. Whether we are under the influence more of hell or the Holy Spirit will be reflected in how we speak and what we say. Slander, no one, Paul writes. So for someone like me, I need to learn to be slow to speak or to use other biblical language, set a guard at the door of my mouth. Wouldn't that be helpful if that was like a plug-in like for your life, just up, add guard, (laughs) be amazing. We actually have one, it's called the Holy Spirit. To guard something means two things. You recognize its value and you give thought to how it can be protected. So we are to, the way we guard our words is we recognize their power and their value and therefore we actually give thought to how we can protect that. So here's a threefold practice that I know helps me. Hopefully it can help you. And surprising no one, it begins with three Ps pause, pray. Prepare. Pause. First of all, when you're in a heated situation, it could be online, it could be at work, it could be in the church, and you feel the emotions like just filling up, and you've got this like epic lightning bolt response like ready to go, just pause. God created a save as draft folder for a reason. Just pause slow yourself down. And secondly, pray. It could be a short prayer. God, help me right now to see the power of my words and use them for good. Holy Spirit, help me. It could be a quick prayer. Holy Spirit, guide my words. Help me not to say anything stupid right now. Hey, if you think that prayer is above you, it's certainly not above me. And then prepare. Okay, what response would be Helpful in this moment, right for this moment. We need our words to be governed by Christ Himself. We must guard our mouths in a world of gossip. It's one of the ways in which we become a countercultural presence. And so ask yourself this morning how have I been using my words? And what impact. Have they created for good or for bad? And this is not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others. The fourth principle, if we want to be a countercultural presence, we must pursue peace over personal pride. Again, there's a time for a debate, a time we must disagree, but we must do so not only with the right words, but the right motive. Paul says in the middle of verse two, to be peaceable and considerate is the church marked by men and women who are peaceable and considerate. The word peaceable literally means to avoid quarreling. So the ESV actually renders it in that way. Why? Because quarreling is all about proving yourself right because you want to be right. And let's be real, people. There is an adrenaline rush that can come to many when you are right don't even act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, like, no, don't play this game. When someone comes back to you and says, you know, the other day we had that sharp disagreement, but I went home and I Googled and you know what I learned? You were right. And you're like, I know say it again, you were right, say it again, put it in writing, you were right, we were wrong. <laughs> oh, there's something that feels so good about it. And therefore, many people engage even with the right topic. They may even be right. The problem is they love to be right, and that's dangerous. Because you will engage, you're like, ooh, they're wrong, Oop, that's my mission. Oh, I can't wait, I'm so excited. Some of you, you know, what do I do for adrenaline? You're like rock climbing and arguing. (laughs) That's what I'm into, because it feels good to be right. How many of our arguments and engagements, even on important topics, are about our own egos? If it is, that's quarreling. And we've forgotten that our purpose is not so much to win an argument, it's to win a person. Kingdom citizens are looking to the good of the community above their personal pride. It means we engage in such a way, and even speak the truth, to reconcile, to see wounds healed, because we're called to be peacemakers, not peace breakers. And so we need to ask, well, how can I engage in a way that I'm I'm preserving peace or creating peace and not breaking peace? I'm not talking about peace at any price. Yes, we speak the truth, but in such a way that we want to see wounds heal and relationships restored and people to be saved and shown the goodness of Jesus Christ. We pursue peace over personal pride. It means we consider other people, which leads to the last practice. We must risk gentleness in a harsh society. And if there's one word that doesn't come to my mind when I think about our culture, it's gentleness. And yet Paul says, at the end of verse two, and always be gentle towards some people. No, that's not what it says. It says, and always be gentle towards who? Everyone, how often? Always. (laughs) This is a moment. If you have a highlighter, that's when you pull it out. Because our temptation is to be harsh, short, and overbearing. But I love the word gentle. It can actually be rendered as, I love this, sweet reasonableness. That's good, right? If you're looking for a band name, there you go. Sweet reasonableness. It means you actually give care and thought to the way in which you're dealing with and handling that person. Now, this is a struggle for some Christians because, and I've heard this often, wait a minute, isn't being gentle and kind to the worldly culture approving of their lifestyle? There are a lot of people who wrestle with that. I don't want to be too gentle or too got kind because I might risk as though I'm approving the way in which the world is behaving and living. But this is where we would do well to remember that we actually take our cues from God himself. In the midst of a well-known passage about loving our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a surprising sentence at the end that we often overlook on this matter. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's what theologians call common grace. The grace and kindness and goodness that God shows apart from salvation to a broken world. The just and the unjust alike, the righteous and the unrighteous, guess what? The sun shines on them all. The rain falls on them all so that they can grow their crops. God's common grace is not an endorsement of their sin, it is a signpost of his love. His show of concern is not a stamp of approval. It's a signpost to the goodness and kindness of God. Jesus was a friend of sinners, yet without approving sin. See, this is something that our culture often doesn't understand, and even some within the church often forget. You can love someone and yet fully disagree with them. And you know this well if you're a parent. (laughs) Right, You have a child who like, picked up a plastic pipe in the room and hit their sibling, and you're like, that is wrong, you must stop it, and I love you. <laughs> hey, I love you, son, and I fully disagree with you. <laughs> See, in our culture, we have come to think that love equals affirmation. That if I really love you, I'm gonna affirm everything you do. Like, imagine that in parenting. Oh, you hit your sister, let's, let's do positive parenting. Okay, never mind. You shouldn't hate your sister. <laughs> like, that is a negative thing. Don't, don't do that. We think love equals affirmation. But in Scripture, we learn that we are to speak the truth with what? Love. You can be truthful and gentle. And such characteristics should mark the church today. See, our culture understands well backbiting and infighting. But the kind of living that will win a hearing for the gospel is a radically different pattern of living, truth and gentleness. Consider it. That word he used before means you actually put yourself in someone else's shoes. And we're to show this to everyone. It means there's not a limit on those to whom you should show kindness. But of course, this will come at a cost. It's also really hard to do. If you're like me, you're going through this and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so many ways in which i failed. Where do I get the motivation for this? Where do I find the power for this? Well, that's why we must always remember that the power for all of these instructions and practices come from Jesus Christ himself because all the things we're called to do for others are things that Christ has first done for us. There is no limit to the kindness and gentleness that Jesus Christ has shown me or shown you. And so he is not only our example, he's our enabler. So we might have some objections this morning. Well, my time and my treasure is my own. Well, what if Jesus said that? Then we'd be left to eternal destruction. We might say, well, this place, these people, they don't deserve my effort. (laughs) Jesus could have said, I'm not going to give to these undeserving people. But he didn't say that. In fact, Jesus died for us even while we were sinning against him. We might say, these people won't receive my love. Well, we look at Jesus, who, knowing that many would not receive him, still gave his life for them. We might say, well, these people, this place, they will abuse what I have to give. Jesus could have said it with far greater conviction, knowing that even we, even us in this room, who would abuse what he's given us, misuse it, use his forgiveness as a license to sin, and yet he still gave. He still loved you. He still showed his incredible kindness and mercy to you. Friends, this is where we get the power. This is how you and I are able to be a counter-cultural presence for Christ and live sacrificially because he sacrificed his life for us. You begin to learn how to do this for others when you see how Christ has done it for you. He came, the Son of God, into our world, gentle, but with authority, speaking the truth. Consider it to the point and so committed to your good that he not only theoretically, but actually put himself in your shoes when he went all the way to the cross where he died in your place and mine for our sin, not his, so that we could have a love and an adoption and an inheritance that only he deserves. Isn't that beautiful? So if this is true, which it is, and if you've received this, which I hope, then are you allowing Jesus Christ to govern your heart? Are you allowing Jesus Christ to govern your life? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, today is the moment for you to say, I'm no longer gonna live in rebellion and opposition to God and suffer eternal separation from him because of my sin. Believe today on Jesus Christ, trust him, Ask him to be your savior and the one who rules and reigns over your life and you will know forgiveness and everlasting life the moment that you believe. And for those of us in the church, are we allowing this beautiful savior to govern our lives? If not, it means that we've drifted from him And so today is an invitation to draw near toward him. It is the love of Christ that compels us. His love for us that strengthens the way we love others. And so to put it simply, if we are lacking in these things, then we're actually lacking in our dependence on the Holy Spirit who makes us more like Jesus. So let's lean in. Let's draw near to him. Let's receive his forgiveness anew and afresh and ask him to govern us and to empower us. If Christ has changed your heart, then go and speak with respect and give like crazy and serve people who are undeserving and speak the truth and love and show kindness even when it's not returned and be gentle in this harsh society and risk it all to show off the one who gave it all for you. Amen. Let's pray that this would be so. Father, we begin by just confessing our sin as a church if in any way we have not reflected you with our words, our attitudes, or our actions. God, in this cultural moment, we know how important and strategic it is for us to be men and women who follow your word and rely on your spirit. And so we begin by asking you and confessing our sin and asking you for forgiveness that you'd renew our minds, renew our hearts, Lord. Govern us with your love. And Father, if there's anyone here who's been wounded by the words, actions or attitudes of others that you would bring healing to them today. That you are the one who sent your son to die for us all. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, we pray that right now they would simply pray from their heart, Jesus, save me. That they would know you as their savior. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your work. Transform us as we respond to you.